should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy New Year. I think it's safe to, to keep saying that throughout this week. It's the first week of January, uh, the year 2016. I'm pretty sure when I was a kid, uh, I thought, you know, in the year 2016, Terminators would be crawling everywhere and RoboCops and things like that. Fong, our producer, is in studio. Fong is still with us. Hi. Yeah, I, I'm I say still here. <laughs> you're, you're, you're alive and you're still hanging in with the, uh, <laughs> uh, the crazy Michelle Meow. <laughs> <laughs> you're not crazy. 2016, <laughs> 2016, what did you think, you know, what did you think the year was going to be like when you were a kid? Um, actually, I didn't think of it that far. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, a new year, you know, and I'm Chinese, so I get red envelopes. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to get a red envelope soon. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, at, least, at least one or two, hopefully. <laughs> Do you get red envelopes even though you're an adult now? Yeah. That's so awesome. I know. I just wanted to stay like this. Well, you know, I when I was growing up, um, I grew up extremely poor. Mm. You know, there's uh, my mom was a single mom, and there was five of us. Wow. Uh, so five of us fighting for food, five of us fighting for her attention, five of us fighting for clothes. Um, and so, you know, school was this place of safety, and it was refuge, um, you know, and, and, and kind of a, a getaway from the rough streets that we grew up on but also it was a place in which it provided us some sustenance Mm -hmm. we got food uh and uh, we got to learn something um so when I look back at you know the system in which I was placed at a young kid and where I'm at today and kind of what I've learned through that process um you know I'm I I would not take anything away Mm. but it's crazy to think that the issues that uh, I grew up facing are the same issues that many kids are still facing today and and sometimes you know you when you think about the future of course you think things are supposed to get better you know cars are supposed to get faster (laughs) uh technology is supposed to get better and all this stuff but our guest today in which we should start uh the program soon will discuss some of those issues that we we uh, continue to face and that is widespread poverty opportunities, mm-hmm. limited opportunities, all these things, and um, and how education and school factor into that. Uh, but before we get started, I should say that this program is happily sponsored by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Our guest today is Rachel Martin, who has a, an article out on The Atlantic, which is, uh, of course, one of my favorite go-to places to get a lot of um, my education uh, and my reading done. 
but the title of the article is titled Salvaging Education in Rural America, Rural Towns Struggling with Widespread Poverty, Limited Opportunity, and Low College Attendance Rates. What role do schools play in improving the quality of life? Let's find out. Rachel, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here today. Um, yeah, so, you know, like I said earlier, I, I mean, I really enjoy reading the uh, intelligent articles that come out of the Atlantic, uh, but also I'm finding that there are a lot of articles also that are are beginning to talk a lot about poverty and uh, income inequality and the fact that, you know, there's a, the, the middle class is almost disappearing. But I want to focus on your article for uh, a lot of reasons, and that's the school system. We oftentimes hear you know, a lot about urban uh, school systems and the issues that urban uh, school systems face, but you have a very particular perception on a rural town such as Fentress County. Yeah, and this is something that is personally important to me. You were talking about getting raised in, it, it sounds like a relatively impoverished urban district. Mm-hmm. Stockton, California. In, yeah, I was raised in rural Tennessee where we faced so many of the same issues. You know, kids would come to school and they'd be hungry. Mm-hmm. They might not have eaten since they were in school the day before. There were kids in school who just didn't have access to all of the advantages that I thankfully did through my parents. And looking at the different directions our lives have taken over the years, I can't help wondering how much our school helped us and how much more it really could have done. Right, um, right. So it's, it's, it's a passion of mine to include rural education in this conversation about educational inequality and also economic inequality in America today. Exactly. Now, you have some um, incredible statistics, and we, like I said earlier, there's a lot of information out there when it comes to urban school systems. But rural uh, school systems, the stats there in terms of, uh, you know, how, how, how much of the country uh, is considered, in, you know, rule uh, as far as the school system goes. And and you, you kind of tackle that in your article. There, it's a good number. <laughs> yes. Rural America is still here. Um, it right. still matters. And they still really want to be part of our nation, part of the conversation. And I think many people who live outside of urban districts, still they're getting ignored and they're not being listened to these days. So let's let's dive into your article that focuses on Fentress County, which will provide an example for our listeners today of just kind of what are you know uh, what what kids are facing in when they're go- growing up in the rural school system. Uh, we talked a little bit about you know uh, even hot lunches and 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 it can give you um, an indication of how many kids are actually poor who are attending rural school systems. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and in, in kind of the numbers. I mean, here in this article you mentioned in Fentress County, close to 40% of children live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, let's, it, let's dive into that. What does that actually mean and how does that translate to the rest of the country? Well, compared to the rest of Tennessee, it, the poverty rates in Fentress County, especially the rates of childhood poverty, are considerably higher. Um, it's also a place that, compared to Tennessee, which, let's just be honest, does not stack up well against much of the rest of the country when it comes to issues mm-hmm. of poverty um, or public health. It is also one of the least healthy states 
or counties in the entire state. So it's a place that is is really struggling at the moment. Most of the jobs that have sustained the economy over the years have disappeared. The people who live there and who try to stay where they were raised have trouble earning a living and finding health care and finding just those basic things that we consider necessary to a high quality of life. What is it's where they're from. It's where their families are. And it's a beautiful place. Right. Right. And, and I was going to, you know, add to that. I mean, what does that do to a town like that? You know, when um, those who can leave will leave and those who stay are probably taking jobs that, like you said, can't pay for uh, health care or rent and, and things like that. It, it means that eventually the community is dying. It means that you end up with a community where there are the very young and the very old and there just aren't many people in between to keep it going. And that can become a downward cycle. It's, it's, it sounds so sad. And then when I think about where I'm at here in San Francisco just today, <laughs> the mayor announces that, uh, you know, the, the government, the local government is in a deficit. I wonder, how is that possible when we have yeah. <laughs> so much money in tech and then now we're talking about Fentress County? Um, in which, you know, that to me equates death of, of an actual uh, space. Um, what, what, you know, of, go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. I, that's one of the amazing things then that the Alvin York Institute, which is the school that I was looking at, tries to step in and do. You know, they do everything from participating in the backpack food program so that kids can take food home over the weekend to having a slush fund out of their not very substantial budget so that if a kid doesn't have heat, they can buy them a rick of wood um, and just make sure that they can have heat in their house over the winter. So it's all sorts of problems that schools across the country face and try to help kids address. The York Institute, and, and you talked a little bit about this in terms of its funding, I mean, it's always fighting to exist. Um, yeah. Right, right, and 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 so when when that happens, I guess I guess people like the stories of resilience. They like that people come together and the community and people who come back to their towns to save it. I feel like York Institute is kind of doing that. They really yes, they are, and they have been for generations now. Um, they were founded by a World War One hero who had himself in total nine months of school. Alvin C. York would claim to have a third grade education, but he'd only gone to school nine months over the course of three years. So when he went to France to fight, he discovered that his lack of education was a very real disadvantage in his life. And he took all of his prize money. He's one of the most decorated war heroes of World War I. There is a movie starring uh, about his life he took all of that money and he invested it in the Alvin York Institute and then donated that to the state of Tennessee because he said he didn't want any other rural students in Tennessee to face the same disadvantages he had had. I was going to bring up government and its role in, in making sure that, you know, we sustain communities like Fentress County. And when an individual like that, you know, uh, donates his, his estate 
to the state to make sure that the the community continues growing. I mean, you know, do we know, in fact, that the money is being managed the way that it should be? I mean, it's a hard question to to ask, but I oftentimes find, yeah, you know, because it goes back to the same question that, you know, we're facing today. It's like, how is it that San Francisco is in debt? You know, and and you, you wonder, oh, who are we taxing? Who's managing, you know, the budget and things like that? Um, and I asked that because it's it's all it's a two part question. You know, somebody okay. had once told me like it, it, the argument. Uh, I, I had the chance of meeting some executives from large corporations who say that you know occupying rural a- areas and uh, like you know retail giant like Walmart, for example, provides jobs, provides um, you know a way to get out of of the not being able to, to have a job. And at the very least, you start off with minimum wage and then you, you climb up the ranks. But, but then there's the other argument that these big retail uh, corporations destroy rural communities. I wanted to see what your thoughts were since you did this extensive research on, on, a, on Fentress County. My personal experience with it is that a minimum wage job is not a living wage. So someone can work 40, 50, even 60 hours a week and not be earning enough money to support their family. Mm-hmm. And that's, for me, that's the first problem with that argument. So then, in essence, we have to provide all of this government subsidy for full-time working poor just because large retailers or other industries don't, don't provide enough money for their workers to actually survive. And that makes me question how much they're really contributing to the health of the community. Yes, it is good to have access to food. It is You have to have access to clothing. You know, when I was in Fentress County, I talked to one woman. It was right before Christmas, and she was complaining. She had to drive two and a half hours in order to get to the nearest mall. Oh. She couldn't go shopping at Gap for her daughter. What was she going to do? How was she going to get Christmas presents? Well, that's very frustrating. And so we need retail in a community, but these large retailers often aren't actually providing very good jobs. And then you're right. When, when a large retailer comes in, the smaller mom-and-pop stores that used to be around the square, they all have to shut down. They get undercut, and they just simply can't provide goods and services at the same rate that a national or international dealer can. So I tend to take that argument with a, I tend to not believe that argument. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, most of us who, you know, have some experience in this type of system will will argue differently. Rachel, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I want to dive into answering that question. What role do schools play in improving the quality of life? So stay with us, okay? Okay. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us, and Happy New Year. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our guest today is Rachel Martin, uh, who writes for The Atlantic, and we're talking about her article, Salvaging Education in Rural America. Uh, Rachel, so, you know, right before the break, I mentioned that school does play an important role as far as the quality of life. And, and we talked about the York Institute and, and uh, how that is empowering the community uh, to do more. And then also you talked about, you know, vocational um, schooling and education. How do we how do we answer? Yeah, I'm sure of it. You know, we have a great answer for this, that, yes, in fact, school is is definitely important, especially to rural America and, and communities where there is extreme poverty. Right. Oh, it is, yes. Especially if a school can do what something similar to what the York Institute is doing and partner with local industries to start training highly trained workers who will be able to go out and get, to use the catchphrase of today, good 21st century jobs. Um, that, that's, that's critical. What, what about, you know, as far as opportunities and chances um, for uh, kids who are growing up in rural America to participate in, you know, sectors uh, as far as uh, jobs goes in America that are, are growing really fast, such as technology? Um, I think that, you know, for what we'll have to do is if you get if you have the chance to get out and and get higher education, especially in tech, you should go back and provide opportunities for education in these rural spaces, don't you? Right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I think a lot of people would love to do that. Um, Fentress County actually is in a remarkably good position when it comes to getting involved in the tech industry. In 2008, when the crash happened and recovery money started to flow from the federal government, the local Internet provider took the recovery money they were given and they invested in a high-speed Internet infrastructure. So the schools in Fentress County and industries in Fentress County can actually get online. 
Um, a few months ago, there was a study, though, by Ben Harold over at Education Week, and he looked at how many rural communities just still don't have access to what most of us would consider very basic Internet. Um, he looked at classrooms that have been built to be smart classrooms, and yet they can't. it would take over an hour for them to download a YouTube video. And how do you see that, you know, having a an impact on, say, a kid who is, is trying to get an education today? Is it almost impossible to get an education if, if your school can't even get online? Well, you can get a you can get an excellent education of the sort that I receive. Um, but when so many kids who are coming through schools today are native technology speakers, they just they just know how to use computers and they know how to surf the internet. When they have all of these skills, rural students who don't have those skills are going to be behind. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I will never be as comfortable with my smartphone as my 13 year old nieces with hers. <laughs> Same here, uh, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure that's entirely a bad thing, but moving forward, that means I'm going to struggle more to adapt to the continual rapid changes that are taking place in how we work. So, yeah, I think it really does matter. You can have a great education without the Internet, Mm -hmm. but are you going to graduate able to just step into a, a job? I don't know. I think it would be a challenge. I think there would be a real learning curve there. Right, right. I, yeah, there are some schools um, in California, in, in big urban you know, cities such as San Francisco, Los Angeles, in which um, in the elementary school system, they have access to iPads and all yeah. these you know, really cool, nifty uh, you know, tech stuff and, and apps. And I wonder how that changes the lives of those who grow up um, with access to that versus someone who has an education and has never you know, seen or touch an iPad before until they get they get it somehow. Yes. Well, and the other thing that technology gives to rural schools is these schools are smaller. So a big high school in San Francisco can afford to have, they have the teachers, they have the resources to offer all sorts of different classes. Mm-hmm. So kids can take accelerated languages. They can take multiple science classes. If they love art, they can continue to take art classes. If they love history, they can take a variety of different history classes. But in rural areas, they just don't have the teachers or the classrooms to provide that. Through technology, students can begin networking with other schools and create a new classroom that might combine three, four, ten different schools together. And it just opens their world Mm -hmm. and lets them pursue their passions. I, you know, I wanted to ask you also um, before we, we really conclude about how important education here to everyone, um, not just, you know, for the sake of being a better person in life, but, but why it's so important for our future. I, I wanted to ask about, you know, the programs that I have heard of, when, you know, while growing, while growing up, it was really important uh, that no child was left behind. We know that program, right? And uh, I think you mentioned in your article now it's it's about other programs such as Common Core, Race to the Top. What are those? Well, they are, they are the newest generation of the No Child Left Behind program. 
No Child Left Behind was an attempt to begin reforming and revolutionizing the American educational system. These days, we say very little good about it, but it was an attempt. Um, these latest initiatives are the new form of it. Um, they are all very technology-driven, and that's the other reason Internet access matters. They are very test-driven, and all of these tests are administered online. But the, they are the understanding that, for instance, when you walk into a math class and are asked to solve a problem, it's more helpful if the kid can first identify the problem and then solve it, as opposed to just being said, so ask, so what is 2 plus 2? Um, instead, they might say, George has two apples and Jane has two apples. If they combine their lunches, how many apples would they have? That's a very simple example. But it's trying to teach kids to apply these skills that they're learning um, it will also still need more reform. It is also still very controversial, but it's the latest version of education reform. Mm -hmm. As far as um, you know, Fentures County goes, in it, I guess what I'm trying to get at, uh, as mm -hmm. far as um, the education system and its relationship to the government. I mean, early on in our our interview, we mentioned that if we don't pay attention to what's happening in, in, you know, rural America and the school system, these communities die. I mean, it sounds so, yeah. so depressing and dire. But yet at the same time, you have uh, so, something like York Institute, which is a sign of hope. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, do we have hope for, for rural America? What needs to happen in order for us to continue moving forward and not die? I absolutely have hope for rural America. Um, I think there are people who really care about the places they come from. I think there are people like Superintendent Phil Brannon over at the York Institute who, said, who invest their lives in the future of their communities. And that, that to me, gives me great hope. However, they need a lot of help right now. Um, Infrastructure needs to improve. We need to find a way to bring industry and good jobs back to these communities. We need to make sure that they have the tools and the resources they need to win their fight. Um, because these are very valuable places where there, there's a lot of history and there are people and communities that have a lot to offer to the rest of us mm -hmm. who have moved on into the cities and left all that behind us. My last question to you, you know, has to do with the fact that uh, it's the beginning of 2016, but 2016 will be a very important year um, mm -hmm. be because we'll be electing a new president. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the issues that have been top of mind for President Obama and his administration, at least in the last couple of years, have been health or health care and uh, now gun control. Um, haven't heard much about education. I don't know if any of the other candidates have been talking enough about education, but what do you think? What do you think in 2016? Will, will, will one of them make it important? And, um, and how can we get the attention of, of any of these candidates if they're not talking about it right now? Oh, I hope somebody decides to make it important. I agree. I don't see anyone focusing on it right now. 
Um, and that really, that really concerns me, that it's fallen out of our conversation. I think the first step is for people who have, for media and other people who have contact with the candidates, to just start asking. Mm-hmm. All of these candidates are deciding their talking points based upon polls and based upon questions they're getting. So if we show up at town hall forums and ask questions, if we tell pollsters we care, if we, if we make this an issue, the candidates will respond. And if we don't make it an issue, education reform has been a big, messy process so far. They're going to walk as far away from it as they can um, because it's, it, it isn't the simple narrative that something like gun control is right now. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, a lot of people say either, yes, I believe in gun control, or no, don't take my gun. And it's a very simple black and white question, we think. Probably not true, but we think. <laughs> um, when it, but with education reform right now, we've been working on it for 20 years, and we, we don't see all that much real improvement. So I think candidates are eager to not have to go there, and we just have to demand that they do. You're absolutely right. And uh, it goes back to in the beginning when she, in which I said, you know, when I grew up in the elementary or when I was in the elementary system, the same issues that I face are the same issues that um, kids today are, are facing. And we're in year 2016. So everything you said makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm continually amazed that schools look the same as they did when I was there in the 80s. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, they really do. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for, uh, you know, writing your article and doing the work that you do. Uh, Obviously, you know, that is a huge part of the media and making sure that uh, all voices are heard. So thank you for your work. Well, thank you. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about it. I really appreciated it and I enjoyed it. Check out Rachel's article and give it a read by visiting The Atlantic and searching the title Salvaging Education in Rural America. Don't go away. When we come back, the Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like I forget that it's my place running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. 
um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our next guest, or I should say our next interview, is with book editor and author Shane Allison. He's got a new book out, which is a collection of erotic stories from the gym. Let's take a listen. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, our producer. Fong is in studio. What's going on, Fong? Hey, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I, I, uh, I wanted to tell you a story, you know, when... um. Well, actually, you know, for you, when you first came out, uh, I'm sure of it that you you didn't know everything gay. Nah. No, I wish I knew everything gay. See, my mind is interesting. It's like a sponge. It wants to absorb everything. So when I came out as a lesbian, I wasn't necessarily interested in just lesbian culture, but I also wanted to embrace all the identities uh, of our, you know, LGBTQI uh, rainbow umbrella. So... Um, even for my gay brothers and uh, friends and everything like that, I I wanted to embrace their culture. And so I spent, I think, like two months straight tuning into gay porn to make oh. sure I completely <laughs> understood <laughs> gay men, which was an advice, by the way, from a gay friend of mine. Um, and uh, I, I'm really glad that I took the time at the, at the moment when I did that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I was only like 20 years old or something. Um, you know, I was just like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. This makes me feel weird or whatever. But now looking back, I think that gave me the perspective that I needed, you know, to be who I am today. So I'm very grateful for that moment. Well, <laughs> what did you learn, actually? Or what did you get away from? Um, you you know, know, what it was, was yeah, I, uh, I was exposed to the images of gay men. And seeing more gay men helped me understand that, you know, uh, the gay community is just as diverse as the lesbian community and and the way that they identify um, and sex being a huge component and mm-hmm. you know sexual liberation uh, coupled with gay liberation that goes you know almost hand in hand and culturally speaking we shouldn't reject that part of our community just because some people might feel uncomfortable or don't understand it or it wasn't a part of their culture uh, so that is why I did it and I'm able to articulate it <laughs> At 33 years old, I'm glad I can articulate it better. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> so uh, let's get this show started. And I told that story for a specific reason. I wonder um, if our next guest has any thoughts about <laughs> what I did. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is the author of Jim Boys, <laughs> Gay Erotic Stories. And I chuckle because I can't wait to t- for him to tell his stories. And so we have author Shane Allison on the program. Shane, welcome to the program. 
Hello, hi. Thank you for having me. Thank uh, you. I'm so excited to have you on, not because I enjoy erotic stories, but I do. I do enjoy gay erotic stories. I'm sure you heard it before that lesbians are uh, completely fascinated, uh, especially with gay porn. And we do watch a lot of gay porn when we are into um, you know, what we were doing. Like, I, I don't know Absolutely. if you remember that scene in the, the, the kids are all right, uh, with Annette Benning and Julian Moore in which they watch gay porn to, to get it on. Um, <laughs> their kid finds a bunch of, yeah, that's, that's likely. But what are your thoughts? Um, well, you know what? It, it, it's not surprising at all. I, I actually, as an editor and as a, uh, anthologist, I, I get a lot of, uh, stories uh, from from uh, female writers and and also I get emails and I get you know fan mail from female writers telling me how much they enjoy the anthologies and how much they enjoy the writing and and I think that you know that's always great to hear I love that I love hearing that so that's always great news and I get some fantastic stories from uh, from female writers, so I, I love that. I, mm-hmm. I, I truly love it. So, so you absolutely. know, one of my good friends and actually mentor. Uh, when I first came out, I, I I met my mentor at our 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 workplace, our job, and he was a fellow gay man, and he was not shy about you know being honest with me in terms of his hookups. So the first time I had actually heard of the gym space being a hookup spot was from a uh-huh. good friend of mine who you know told me that the steam room, you know, you never want to walk in there if it's a gay gym (laughs) (laughs) exactly absolutely i mean uh uh, you know i I don't know if if, uh a lot of it still goes on today but you know that's where i I got my the idea for gym boys from is is going to the gym myself and and just saying all these you know very you know attractive men working out and and you know, getting their sweat on, so to speak, and you know, so I, I, that was a, a, uh, an idea for me. I came up with that idea because I didn't want to do anything that I had already done before, already seen before. So, you know, being in the gym and 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 being around, you know, guys that like to work out, you know, that's what gave me the idea. But I, you know, I love the idea and the fantasy of of men getting it on, having having sex in, in steam rooms and showers and things of that nature. So, you know, it's it's it was a, a fun idea and I put it out there and a lot of my uh my contributors, you know, ran with it and loved the idea. So mm-hmm. you know, I loved it absolutely and so, you know, here what well, was born Jim Boys. So so I, you know, I, I I have a question for you. I mean, uh, the book is great in that uh, there's a diversity of, of erotic stories um, uh-huh. uh, that centers in the gym, and so I'm going to ask a lot of ignorant questions. <laughs> <laughs> there's no such thing. There is no such thing. No such thing. Feel free, ask away. Let's start with uh, you know chapter one titled "One More." Um, uh-huh. I, I think it's totally appropriate for you, by the way, if you wanted to read uh, a, a certain quote or, or something or paragraph from, from the book. I don't know if you have it in front of you. Um, but, yeah, but that was the thing is that, you know, certain authors who write erotic stories have this tone, this, you know, this thing when they read their stories. It's like so seductive. I, I wonder right. if you could do the same thing for us here on the program. 
you, you mean as far as uh, like reading something for you? Or yeah, like yeah, read, read something. Let's start with chapter one, and you read <laughs> a part of the book for our listeners here, probably intrigued by now, and like, Michelle, shut up and let him get to the, the good part. <laughs> <laughs> okay, absolutely. Let me see here. That's, that's actually one of my stories, one of my favorite stories here. That's why I, I, I put it in first. That's from uh, Jay Starr. He's one of my regular contributors uh, to the anthology that I do. So absolutely, let me, let me find a juicy passage here that I can read. Okay. Okay, here's something here. This is uh, on page two. Um, in the middle here, I'm going to start with uh, Tommy here, where he's uh, describing uh, the uh, uh, sexual experience here. And here, here he goes. Uh, his cock had risen up hard and twitching the moment Raphael had slapped his ass and was still tinting his baggy green workout shorts. He was pretty sure the trainer had noticed it, although he had politely made no mention of it. The short redhead stood on the crate to reach the bar while the taller Brazilian put the wrist straps on and then attached them to the bar with the Velcro strips. Tommy was ordered to attempt his first set of ten. Good job, Tommy. You've already got a great back and awesome shoulders, but this exercise in particular will help put on some more mass. That's it. Now one more, he said with a laugh and a second light slap on his ass. Tommy had imagined himself totally spent, but that slap galvanized him to struggle through one more pull-up. Exhausted after that, he dangled from the wrist straps and tried to catch his breath. While resting, Tommy gazed into the large wall mirror in front of him. His short red hair was already plastered to his forehead with sweat, and his taut body glistened with the sheen of it. Hours in the sun had bestowed upon him a freckled tan that contrasted with the pale yellow tank top he wore. His underarms were smooth and pale, though, not receiving as much exposure as the rest of his body. He was proud of his compact build, but wanted to add some bulk to it, which was why he had hired a personal trainer. Occupied with contemplating his image, he didn't he hadn't noticed Raphael rummaging through his trainer's bag until he came up behind him again. He was rubbing his hands together, apparently working in some hand cream he had taken from his bag. That seemed a little odd, but he didn't question it as Raphael offered him a stunning smile in the mirror and nodded. Second set. This one will be harder than the last. I can guarantee you that. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, you know... That, you know, that, that's, this is what I love about, about this job and about doing this is, is the contributors, they make these books. They make these anthologies. You know, I, I can sit and, and uh, edit and read uh, stories from many writers all day, but, you know, they, they make the book for me. And, I, and I, I really appreciate that. And I always thank them for that, for sending me wonderful work. So, you know, it's, it's stories like this that, that really make uh, the books. And I think about my readers when I'm, when I'm, you know, making decisions on the stories, thinking about 
what they would what they would like, and not just uh, gay men, but just readers in general and and connoisseurs of uh, erotica, gay erotica. So that's something that's that's very important to me when when choosing stories. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you know, I I uh, I wonder in in terms of the images of even I mean, well, gosh, I I don't even I know that my gay brother loves to go to the gym, and I I want to ask him if this is one of the reasons why <laughs> because you know uh, eroticism and of course there's got to be tons of attraction and sexual energy that just oozes oh. out of the dumbbells and things like this so you know yeah. something like uh having a heart on or being uh, erected i mean I, I would think that that is not that is that is not something that is is limited i would i would think that that's prevalent uh, is it uh yeah i i would i would say so absolutely i mean it's it's something i think with with Gay men in particular, uh, you know, with, speaking for myself, I everywhere that I go and 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 people that I see and men that I see, uh, it I eroticize them. I, I could be in the mall or I can be at a gas station and I may see someone, some you know, hard taught construction worker or or even someone who's you know a bus driver, anyone and it gets uh, they they get eroticized. So everywhere that I go, and you know, it's it not just you know places like gyms and and uh, on athletic fields, but for me personally, uh, uh, everywhere is is you know you can you can eroticize uh, uh, people, men in general. So absolutely, it it all depends on you know uh, what they're wearing or because we we all have our fantasies. Of, mm-hmm. of uh of people and and uh, occupations specifically like construction workers, gym boys, frat boys, college boys, you know, uh, uh issues that I have uh, that I have talked about and and um, have put into anthologies. But uh yeah, absolutely. I, everywhere, you know, that I go, I you know, I think of ideas and 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 think of of, you know, ways that I can come up with a story or a new book. So, yeah, it definitely exists outside of gyms and and fraternities and things of that nature. So, yes. Um, uh, you know what? I think I'm going to ask you after the break because my producer's telling me we've got less than a minute left because I have a really important question. So please okay. don't go away. Okay, sure. <laughs> Stay with us. We'll continue gay eroticism or, or gym uh, erotic gym stories with Shane Allison, who's an author. Um, right after the break, look at me. I'm stumbling. I'm I'm turning red. Don't go away. Come right back. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. 
After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here. I'm uh, I'm still <laughs> stumbling over my words. I'm Michelle Meow. We're hanging out uh, with Shane Allison. I should say he's on the phone with us. He's our guest, and he's the author of Jim Boys, which is a yeah. collection of uh, erotic uh, stories, uh, you know, the gym. And so, Shane, you know, I had a really important question for you, and this has to uh, do with Chapter 2, in which um, in which the story has a lot to do with smell and the scent of, <laughs> scent of, of, of sex. But I always wanted to know, you know, with gay men, and I know sitting in a room full of boys, I, I always notice that there's a scent that's different. I'm not saying it's bad. You know, as a female, of, of course, I, I notice the difference. Um, but I, I, I wanted to ask you specifically about that scent, that musk. I mean, uh, is that, yeah. a, is that a, like a natural, like, pheromone for, for gay men? Uh, I, you know what? I would, I would imagine so. I would imagine uh, with with men, it's you know, everyone has their 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 smell and 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 a uh, uh, different sense that that turn them on. Um, I know that for me, my my thing is you know, I I like smells like like cigars and 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 uh, I like a mix of cigar and cologne kind of mixed in together. Um, that's the thing that that really does it for me. That 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 really turns me on. Um, but yeah, I would imagine for a lot of men, there are different scents like colognes, cigars, sweat. Um, I know a lot of men, friends of mine, that they just like the natural smell of a man. They don't like colognes or, or uh, uh, cigarettes or cigars. They just like a natural smell of a man. I have a lot of friends that are into sweat and and um, and, and 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 body odor type of aroma. So yeah, absolutely. I think it's different for everyone. But that's my my that's what I love is is the smell of of sweat and cigars. So you know, hopefully not being too personal there, but that's my thing. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, hey, hey uh, or, or uh, I just wonder, I mean, I mean, I don't, never mind, it's fine, let's move on. <laughs> I just noticed, you know, it's a different smell when uh, a bunch of women are working out versus a bunch of men, and, and most gay men have also told me that that musk is, ugh, it's it's amazing to them, so they oh, say. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned the steam room, and there is a chapter here, I, I, uh, I think, that is uh, dedicated to that, the the artistry of steam? Oh, yeah. Uh, this, let's see here. 
Uh, uh, yes, the uh, Brent Archer's story, um, who was a wonderful writer, uh, by the way. He, uh, he's one of my uh, new contributors, um, but he, his stories are wonderful, always wonderful to read. So tell us about the, the steam room and his this particular story. Um, well, with this one, with, with Brent Archer's piece, uh, he, this is, is one of the, uh, another one of the first stories that I accepted, uh, with the artist, the artistry of Strain, is, theme is, um, it's pretty, uh, it's not just, and this is what I love, it, it's not just erotic, erotica, but there's also some literary qualities in there as well, and that's what I like to do as an editor is I like to mix the, the, you know, erotica and, mm -hmm. and literary qualities in with it into the uh, books as well. And that's one of the things that I love about, about Brent is that he has the, the gift to do that. So um, I would love to read uh, like a passage if I could. Yes, let's read some more. Story. Yes, <laughs> I'm ready. Okay, let me, <laughs> let me find, something <laughs> find something juicy for the listeners here. All right, Shane. All right, here we go. Okay. Ah, uh, here's one. Okay, here you go. Uh, this is on page 85 from Brent Archer's The Artistry of Steam. The man smiled and spread his legs wide as he lay back and put his hands to the bar. Brian wheeled his cock not to tint his gym shorts. Holy fuck, what a handsome hunk. Dark hair, mid-thirties, with a nice smile, firm chin, muscle pecs barely contained in his T-shirt, and thick muscular legs with dark hair running from his waist to his ankles. From the look of the bulge in his shorts, this guy packed a large set of equipment. Brian returned his free weight to the wall-mounted shelves and walked over to the handsome man. Hi, I'm Brian. Need a spot? Sure, that'd be great. I'm Todd. Todd took the bar off the rack and began his routine. Brian kept his fingers under the bar to be sure it didn't fall. After 19 reps, Todd's strength faltered, and Brian grabbed the barbell, keeping it from falling on the exercising man's chest. Together, they settled it back in its resting place, and Todd sat up. Sorry, I got distracted by what's up your shorts. Brian smirked. If you want a closer look, how about we finish up our workout and head to the showers? Sounds good to me. They hurried through the remainder of their routines and then walked to the locker room together. Todd stopped two rows from Brian's locker. This is me. I'll get out of these clothes and meet you under the water. Brian nodded. See you shortly. He hurried to his locker and stripped down. Grabbing his towel, he strutted to the shower stalls. There's a frisky crowd today. I don't usually see so many randy men here. He hung his towel on the hook and entered a stall, leaving the curtain open, turning on the spray. He stood under the cascading water and looked across to an empty stall. A few moments later, Todd appeared with a towel wrapped around his waist. He's even hotter out of his clothes. He's the sexiest guy here by far. Todd pulled the cloth away and put it on the hook. He nodded to Brian, stepped into the opposite stall, and turned on the water. Whoa. Todd's defined abs were shaved clean and pointed down to a neatly trimmed patch of hair surrounding a thick cock. As Brian watched, it hardened, and his jaw dropped at the sheer size. 
So that's a passage from Brent Archer's story, The Artistry of Steam. There. There's steam that's coming out of my ears and my eyes right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, this is what, you know, this is what I love is, is, is a mixture of that. You know, I, what I love is I like that the writers, they don't get too bogged down in the literary, but they also keep that, uh, the erotic quality of the story, of the story that they're telling. So, and they always keep their readers in mind, and that's what I always look for. And just basically hotness is what I'm saying. I love hot sex, hot man-on-man sex. So that's what I'm always looking for. And if they have the ability to do that, it, it's a story for me. So. <laughs> I am glad it's a joy for you. And, 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 and I'm sure it's it's joyful to other people as well. I feel like I should pick up this book and as a lesbian read it, you know, to a crowd of straight women and see. Yes. <laughs> um, Shane, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in the, my introduction in terms of embracing this part of our culture and not rejecting it and uh, that, ad- uh. you know, we're admitting to the fact that it is something that is a part of our culture cultural the sexual part you know gay men used to cruise be able to cruise or or sadly they used to cruise in parks you know when we didn't have a gathering space and then right. um, bars and then even bathhouses which you know are dwindling down i don't even know which bathhouses are still open do you see the right. gym as kind of the new modern you know cruising uh spot yeah, I think so. You know, that's one of the things that I, you know, it's funny because I was uh, having a conversation with a friend of mine about uh, we were reliving uh, the 80s and 90s, and I know that, you know, that was a big thing then. It's, you know, and, and for me, it was it was in the 90s. A lot of, a lot of cruising was going on, and it's still, you know, some of it is, is still going on. And, um, you know, I think what has happened now is uh, you have, you know, the Internet happened, basically. Uh, cell phones and, and, you know, websites, and now you have gay apps that people can download on their phones, and you have different websites like Xtube where a lot of sex and porn and erotica is, is you know, is, is as quick and as easy as just tapping an app or, or pushing a button uh, nowadays, and I think uh, the internet basically is 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 what happened is, is to all of that and what uh, stopped all of that. I think it's uh, more convenient for for men nowadays to do that. Um, I do, you know, miss that sometimes because you know it, it brought ideas. You know, and uh, I think that's what has happened is, is, is having the Internet and, and uh, gay apps where it's more convenient for men mm-hmm. to just tap a button, to tap an app, and and they have what I call a, uh, I call them uh, like the, the a, a, a yearbook, if you will, like a, a, a gay yearbook. You have like these yearbook of faces on these apps and they can just press on a face and they can read the profile about a man. But at the same time, I think uh, things like that, they 
take away from the old-fashioned uh, times of going out and meeting people face-to-face, going to a bar, having a drink, talking, socializing, getting to know someone. Um, it's so, you know, that sort of thing. It's so one-sided, you mm-hmm. know. So I, my thing is a uh, frustration of mine is trying to figure out, you know, how how men are are getting together and meeting and getting to really know each other and it not just being about sex hooking up but really you know getting together and and talking and and getting to know one another and each other's backgrounds you know i mean i'm not knocking uh you know gay apps and 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 the websites is great It's, it's more convenient i understand that but at the same time i wonder uh you know, what's going on as far as men being able to, to meet and, and have relationships, no matter what kind of relationship that may right. come out of that. And, so, and to, and to yeah. follow up on that, you know, I, I know that we're talking about the gym here in which one can argue and or say that there's this general idea or sense that, you know, gym people who go to the gym look one way. I, I just would like to point out there that I, what I hope for in sharing these stories and embracing gay culture is that, you know, we do we do become much more um, embracing of body images, period. And, and you right. know, body shapes come in all sizes, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that I, that I always like to embrace, and that's what I always like to see in stories when I'm reading stories from the writers is, you know, I, I, although I love uh, stories where you have, you know, the athletic body, but in reality, that's, you know, that's not always the case. And, you know, those, those are not the only types of men that exist, you know. And I always try to pick stories that delve into more of a, you know, real reality type of feel. Um, like you said, there are men from all backgrounds, all shapes and sizes, and I, I love getting stories like that. I, me and myself, I write a lot of stories where uh, I like to write stories about uh, heavier set men, uh, black men, Latino men, Asian men, because we're all we're all beautiful. You mm-hmm. know, we're all beautiful out here, no matter you know how we look or what our size is. There's a beauty in all of us, and I always like to embrace that and always like to include stories like that in my anthologies in the books. So, yes, absolutely. Well, Shane, thank you so much for joining us here today and for sharing your book. I really enjoyed the time that we shared. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've had fun. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like to pick up a copy of Shane's book that he edited, which is a compilation of uh, erotic stories at the gym, you can pick it up. This, the title is Gym Boys, Gay Erotic Stories, and is available on Amazon. Thanks so much for joining us today. We will be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com in which you can watch the television shows that we also produce. Thanks again. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.